library that we love from the second chapter of the book of Acts. The community continually devoted themselves to learning what the apostles taught them, gathering for fellowship, breaking bread, and praying. Everyone felt a sense of awe because the apostles were doing many signs and wonders among them. There was an intense sense of togetherness among all who believed. They shared all their material possessions in trust. They sold any possessions and goods that did not benefit the community and used the money to help everyone in need. They were unified as they worshipped at the temple day after day. In homes, they broke bread and shared meals with glad and generous hearts. The new disciples praised God and they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people of the city. Day after day, the Lord added to their number everyone who was experiencing liberation. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in 2018, a fascinating documentary entitled Behind the Curve was released. And you may have seen this movie, Behind the Curve. It explores the ideology and growing community of flat earthers, people who firmly believe that the earth is not a round sphere, but is in fact flat. Flat earthers are no joke. This is a real thing with real people behind it, more than we might imagine. And this documentary allows viewers a chance to get to know several flat earthers up close and personal. Now you can watch for yourself and feel free to disagree with me, but in my humble opinion, with the exception to their belief that the earth is flat, these people seem to be normal. From what I can tell, flat earthers are just like me in most ways. All that really makes us different is how we see the world. Their experience tells them that the earth is flat. My experience tells me that the earth has curvature and depth. Their studies and theories reveal finite descriptions of control and manipulation, conspiracies trying to keep us humans in the dark. And the studies and theories to which I have been exposed reveal and describe an infinite universe with stars and moons and planets and solar systems expansive and expanding past any human imagination or understanding and when I hear it like that I have to admit that their way sounds a little easier to grasp their explanation seems to match our normal literal experience their way of seeing things seems to involve less wonder and mystery and it only appears to require skepticism They're skeptical of the idea of a rotating, spherical earth floating through an ever-expanding universe. I'm not. I accept it as the way things are. But apart from that, my guess is that if these flat earthers were among us and we did not bring up the shape or status of the earth, we wouldn't even know the difference. They seem mostly normal, which is a label I aspire to myself most of the time. Contrastingly, the people Luke described for us this morning in the passage of Acts 2, they do not seem normal to me, not at all. These people are filled with awe, witnessing signs and wonders, living in wonderful harmony, which, let's be honest, in and of itself, living in wonderful harmony already makes you weird. But they are, they're there for us to read about and deal with these weirdos from Acts 2, Verses 42 through 47, a passage with which many of us are probably familiar. 
For centuries, faithful people have referred to these verses as the beginning of the church and tried to use them as some sort of formula or guide for what church should be like, which probably strikes some of us as odd because I doubt if we asked anyone on the street today to summarize the church, any church, in a paragraph that they would describe the church as filled with awe, witnessing signs and wonders, and living in wonderful harmony. But instead of getting depressed over how people on the street would describe the church, let's talk a little bit about what Luke, the author of the stories of Acts, is doing here as a storyteller. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, is what biblical and literal scholars call a summary passage. It's a storytelling technique that humans have used for thousands of years. By definition, summary passages like this one set the scene They condense the information and context the storyteller wants an audience to have or hold on to as they move through the coming narrative. Theologian and author N.T. Wright likens Luke's efforts in this summary passage to creating a moment of pause after the story he is telling has gotten off to a flying start. It might help us to remember that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts appear to have been written originally as a single work not as the two books that we now have in our Bible separated by the Gospel of John. And if we hold the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as a single work, one grand story that Luke is telling about Jesus the Christ and the active presence of the Spirit of God, then this summary passage is well-placed. So much has happened in this story so far. The birth, life, ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Christ and the equipping and sending of the disciples to the ends of the earth, just to name a few highlights. And in the verses right before this summary passage, a mass awakening to the Spirit of God and those gathered around Peter and the disciples during the Feast of Shavuot, or Pentecost. A lot has happened. This seems like a good moment to take a break. On one level, that's what Luke the storyteller is doing using these five verses as an opportunity for the audience to catch its breath and assess the path that they have just traveled. But this summary passage isn't just a pause in the action, because while the audience catches its breath, Luke is also busy pointing out the landmarks for the journey ahead. And landmarks are important. They help travelers keep their bearings. Luke's landmarks communicate to his audience what they need to know, what they should recognize about this Jesus-following movement and life. Now, from a storytelling standpoint, this is all pretty standard. Using a summary passage in an epic story, giving your audience a moment to catch up, communicating the important information, the landmarks, that's all normal. As we discussed a moment ago, however, there's something about the summary passage in Acts 2 that is not normal. The people. The people Luke describes in his summary passage, the ways in which they behave, the lives to which they are devoted, are not normal. These people hold everything in common. These people are pursuing teaching and prayer and worship together. They're eating their meals together at an open table. They are pooling and sharing their resources and their possessions. Now, using a summary passage may be normal, but nothing that Luke describes in the summary passage 
is normal. And if we can agree on nothing else about this scripture passage today, we should at least agree on this. Luke wants his audience to know that these people were different. Luke wanted to communicate that these people were not normal. They were not living or behaving in normal ways. I have to be honest, the people that Luke describes in this summary passage are so different, so weird, that it stresses me out a little bit. Luke's original audience may have been blessed by this summary description of an early community of Jesus followers, but as a member of Luke's modern audience, I have to say that I have issues. I have questions. Questions like, am I supposed to live like this? Because it sounds like a lot of work and I'm kind of busy. Am I supposed to have a shared pursuit of worship and prayer and study with all the people of faith in my community? Again, I'm kind of busy. I don't even know or do life with everyone in this church, let alone all the people of faith in my community. And this may shock you to hear, but there's some people out there, Christians even, that I don't want to be around. Am I supposed to set an open table for all comers at every meal? I mean, what if I share my food and I don't get enough? Seriously, I'm that guy that can't stand it when people take food off of my plate. That drives me nuts. If you wanted fries, you should have ordered fries. So eat your stupid salad and keep your hands off my plate. Here's another question. Am I supposed to sell all of my stuff and give it to those in need? I like my stuff. Why can't they make their own money and get their own stuff? You see what I mean? The way the people of this summary passage are portrayed is unsettling to the way I live my life. Luke is stressing me out. I don't want to be overly defensive here, but who lives like this? Seriously, if the point of Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, is to communicate to all followers of Jesus everywhere and always that this is how we're supposed to live, then what are we all doing? I don't know anyone who lives like this. In the 2,000 years since this summary passage was written, we haven't lived like this. Not really. Not collectively. I never have. I'm a pastor. I've worked for the church for 20 years. This is my profession, and I don't live like this. I know we could probably rack our brains and come up with an exception, someone like Rumi or Gandhi or Mother Teresa. But there's a reason that we know those names. We know those individuals because they're the exception. We know them because they did live like this when everyone else around them did not. The same can be said of our communities. The community described in Luke's summary passage did not invent the principles of common good and devotion that he says they lived. The ideas of a shared life and faith, pooling resources, caring for those in need, breaking bread together, these are ancient ideas. In Deuteronomy 15, the Torah promises a land free of poverty and instructs the faithful to shema, or listen and follow the voice of God that declares there should not be any poor people among you. Leviticus 25 establishes the patterns and practices for the recurring year of Jubilee, including the redistribution of proceeds from sold property, 
the forgiving of debts, and the release of the enslaved and indentured. These beliefs and practices of the common good are present in the Torah and echoed numerous times throughout the Hebrew Bible as a reflection of the character of God's kingdom. The ancient Essene community in Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, required those who joined their community to sell their property and possessions and use it in a general fund. And certainly there have been other communities throughout history, and even today, that have tried or are trying to live a common life, sharing resources and working together, monasteries, communes, kibbutzim. And even, that, even that's not meant to imply that the pursuit of the common good was limited to the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Pythagoreans, you may know Pythagoras from geometry, math class. You may have nightmares when I say that name. There was an ancient Greek sect, the Pythagoreans, and they also rejected personal property and shared their resources. But just like the exceptional people we named a few moments ago, these communities are also exceptions. We remember the Essenes and the Pythagoreans for the same reason that we remember Gandhi and Mother Teresa. They were different. They saw the world differently. It's almost like they understood the world to be multidimensional while everyone else around them understood it to be flat. They were not normal. They were the exceptions to the norm. And their exceptionalism was fleeting at best. It didn't stick. It didn't last. Compared to how our civilizations and cultures have continued to behave and evolve, none of the exceptions that we just named seem to have much of an impact. Not the ancient Israelites, not the Essenes, not the Pythagoreans, and if we're honest, not even the community Luke summarizes in Acts 2. So if we agree that the people Luke describes in Acts 2 are not normal, then we also agree that we are normal. It's our practices, our ways of being, and our ideas that pass for normal. Ideas like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Good fences make good neighbors. Trespassers will be shot. I need to assure you that I'm not pointing a finger here. I'm not looking at you through a lens. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. If I'm honest, I can't help but see how much of my energy and life is obsessed with me. Sure, every now and then I may stumble across a moment of clarity and care for others, but the reality is that most of my bandwidth is not dedicated to the common good and the shared pursuit of the divine. Most of my bandwidth is dedicated to the pursuit of Daryl's happiness. The idea at the center of my universe is usually my comfort, not yours. The practices and behaviors upon which my life has been built reveal that my private property, my stuff, acquiring it, maintaining it, polishing it, that's what drives me. That's why I do all that I do. The experience described in Luke's summary passage is simply not my experience. Luke describes a religious life characterized by the pursuit of commonality through shared resources, meals, study, and worship. A fair description of my religious life is characterized by the pursuit of self-gratification 
through self-absorbed consumerism and superficiality. I am not like the people Luke describes in Acts 2. And if Luke were here today, he would say, no kidding. But if that's the point, if the main idea that Luke wanted to communicate to his audience in the summary passage of Acts 2 was that these people were different, then perhaps the main question Luke wants his audience to ask is why? Why were they different? What made them the way that Luke describes? The scripture immediately preceding verses 42 through 47 claims this early gathering of Jesus' followers numbered around 3,000 and describes them as devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, comma, Cretans and Arabs. What? I have to tell you, the more I find out about this community, the stranger they seem. For some reason in my mind, I pictured the early community of Acts 2 as homogenous. That is just what I would expect from a group of people who are able to live the devoted common life that Luke describes. I figured they're all very similar. People wearing the same clothes, with the same haircut, almost like a first century Amish country. But this description says this is a diverse gathering of Jews and converts to Judaism from many different nations as well as some folks who weren't even Jewish, people from outside the tribe. Now I know I have never experienced anything like this. I could probably rationalize my way into assuming that my religious communities have in some way checked the boxes of sharing resources or breaking bread together or pursuing a common life, but I have never been a part of anything this diverse. There are several different countries listed here, multiple ethnicities and divergent religious traditions. Now, no disrespect intended, but this isn't the Amish country. This is a United Colors of Benetton commercial. And if you don't get that reference, just think United Nations, but fashionable and more fun. Um, This is some sort of first century melting pot, a cultural kaleidoscope. These ridiculously strange and abnormal people Luke describes are able to cross ethnic, cultural, and religious boundaries to study, pray, and eat together, working and sharing so that each of them has all that they need. Enough already, Luke. I get it. You've made your point. These people are different. I just want to know why. Why were they different? What made them this way? Friends, I have done my best to come up with the reasons why this community that Luke describes in this summary passage are like this. I wish I had a list that I could share with you. I wish I could give you three things or five things with the same letter or that spelled some kind of acronym. But I can't see anything like that. What I can see is a group of people that had a profound experience of withness. That's a word that we don't hear very often, withness, but it is a word. In the verses immediately preceding Luke's summary passage of Acts 2, the people of that gathered cultural kaleidoscope all wake up to the reality 
that the God of all creation, the source of the universe, is with them. They are not alone. They are not separated. In fact, their experience of withness tells them that no one is alone. No one is separated. Each person gathered simultaneously hears Peter talking to them in their native tongue. No translators needed. Peter speaks to the crowd, and whatever he says in his language gets heard in the language that the hearer requires. All boundaries are broken. There is no exclusion in the gathered crowd. The withness of God's Spirit is for everyone, regardless of where they were born, regardless of the language they speak, regardless of their ethnicity, nationality, social class, economic status, and even their religion. This awakening is for everyone. There are no conditions. There are no prerequisites. Can I imagine an experience like that? A specific, substantial, unsettling experience of the withness of God? Can I envision the kind of awakening that transforms everything, that causes the way I see the world to change? Apparently, Luke could. We're looking at this passage today because Luke did. In fact, Luke invites his audience into precisely that kind of withness. The kind of withness that obliterates all human divisions, the very presence of God with everyone, everywhere, all the time. The community of Acts 2 responded to that withness by sharing prayer and study and worship and resources and tables across all boundaries which previously seemed to divide them. They responded by seeing a deep, multidimensional world where there had previously been a flat shell. Everything changed. How they held their worship and their study and prayer, how they viewed their possessions, how they took their meals, how they saw themselves and others. These people were no longer normal. They were different. They were awakened to the witness to God and each other. Witness is Luke's witness in the summary passage of Acts 2. Witness is Luke's testimony. Witness is a landmark to Luke. And the 2,000-year-old question I am asked when I see that landmark and I hear Luke's testimony is who am I with? With whom do I have withness? Am I normal? Or am I awake to the God that is with us, all of us? Am I different? Or is my worship and study and prayer the same as it has always been? Am I so transformed by the withness of God that my possessions and my meals are different? Or do I settle for the same isolating boundaries that divide up our world? Is my world round or is it flat? You know, my conclusion after watching Behind the Curve was not so much that flat earthers are crazy or ridiculous, just that they can't see it. 
They don't realize what's all around them, what the earth is really like. If anything, it makes me wonder about what I can't see. What is all around me? Luke would say it's the withness of God, the spirit of God, and it changes everything. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord God, source and sustainer of the universe who dwelled with our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. We remember that it is your spirit, your very breath, that fills us and makes us alive. We rejoice that you are as close to us as our very breath, and yet as mysterious and dynamic as the wind. We thank you for Jesus who showed us what it looks like when your withness puts on flesh and bone to live and love among us. And in the name of all of our ancestors in Acts 2, we pray that we may listen and awaken to your presence in our lives and that our awakening to your withness and our withness may fill our hearts, kindle in us the fire of your love, and renew every depth and dimension of the earth. Amen.